the greatest gift you can give your child is to know your own story. Because what often happens, and I see this with so many parents, is that we will constantly repeat the patterns that are done to us until there's an interrupt somewhere. And so our children, you know, who are very wise, gorgeous little beings come in and then say, hey, I don't want to wear more of your baggage. And so they'll push up against us and they'll behave in certain ways that totally push our buttons. And that is the invitation for us to go, oh, what is this about for me? And when we do the work and when we shift some of our story, I do our healing work, our kids go, oh, good, I don't have to carry that forward. Welcome to Raising Greatness, where we ask the questions every parent wants to know. I'm Ryan Adams, and in today's episode, we have Lael Stone, co-creator of the Woodland Primary School and the Aware Parenting Podcast. Lael is an educator, TEDx speaker, author, mother, and parenting counselor who has been working with families for over 20 years. Join us as we learn about emotionally aware parenting, how to raise resilient children, the natural mechanism to heal trauma, and how to create space, listen, and when to say no while still empowering our children. Lael, I want to thank you for joining us. I'm I'm really excited for this conversation. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Ryan. You're very welcome. So you talk a lot. um, You talk all about aware parenting, and you've got a book and a podcast. And I guess maybe let's just start with what is aware parenting? Mm, a great question. So Aware Parenting actually was founded by Dr. Aletha Salter, who's a Swiss-American psychologist, so probably around about 30 years or so ago. And her first book was called The Aware Baby, which really, I think, brought a whole other element to understanding um, feelings, emotions, and, and particularly starting with babies. So a lot of the, the tenets of Aware Parenting are around what we'd call close attunement, so, you know, being attached to our child. So things like, you know, maybe wearing the baby on your body or you know, co-sleeping or being attuned to them, you know, kind of that, that gorgeous, you know, connection with your baby. So one of the elements of where parenting is definitely that close attunement. The second part is uh, where she talks about non-punitive discipline. So it's not using um, punishments and rewards to get our kids to do things. So that's obviously not for a baby. We're not punishing a baby, but as our children grow up and get older, it's about not using punishments and rewards. And it looks at uh, looking behind the behavior and understanding the why behind children do what they do. And then the third element of aware parenting is really about helping babies and children heal from stress and trauma uh, that we all have in our life. You know, even if we have the most idyllic upbringing, we all have micro traumas or stuff that happens for us. And it's about um, the beauty of crying, laughing, the body's natural um, healing mechanisms that we have in order to heal from past traumas. So she encompasses those kind of three elements and um, she's written many, many books. And I can came across Aware Parenting uh, probably nearly 15 years ago now. So I have three children. I have a 22-year-old son, a 19-year-old daughter, and a um, nearly 15-year-old daughter. And I came across Aware Parenting mainly because I'd had trauma with my third baby. We had a really um, challenging birth experience. And when I brought her home, I remember just thinking, we've both been through a big trauma. How are we going to heal this? You know, I'd I'd worked in birth for a long time and I'd seen the impact of traumatic birth on on many families and particularly on babies. And I was like, how do I heal this? How do I help my baby release what has happened for them? And so that's when I came across Aletha Salter's book, The Aware Baby, and just went, whoa, this is this is what I'd been waiting for because it talked about parenting with such um, 
connection and with such heart and with such love, but also with having boundaries and holding space for our kids' feelings. And it it really helped me kind of go, okay, this is what I want to do with my older kids as well. And it was, had such a pivotal impact on my life. I then became an aware parenting instructor and started working with parents and, you know, and then I built a school based on these philosophies as well. And, you know, it's kind of gone from there. So it's had a huge impact on my life. And I think it's, um, it is, it encompasses a whole, a whole lot around humanity and how children are people as well and how really we need to be connected and attuned to them. So we started out with a bang and it looks like there's a lot to unpack here with just the idea of awareness in general. So, okay. First thing I want to touch on here is, so you have a background with postnatal trauma and you, most people don't think about a baby necessarily. It seems like the prevailing wisdom is almost that children don't remember much before the age of two or four. But the idea that they may, through the birth process or through, I guess, with the trauma that the parents are going through, inherit a certain amount of trauma. Can you talk a little bit more about what what that looks like and, and then even the healing process then um, for, for an infant? Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, I I think it's interesting to just firstly clarify when we're talking about trauma, because I think a lot of people have in their mind when we're talking about trauma, it's a car accident or someone dying or something really dramatic, but trauma can really be times where we just don't get our needs met, where perhaps we are really upset or we're frightened or we're scared and we have that fight or flight response happen in our body and we freeze or we try and run away and we don't have the opportunity to complete the process of what the body's natural state is, whether that is to cry about what happened, to shake about what happened, to sometimes we use laughter as a way to to remove stress. So, you know, I think when we look at trauma, I think a lot of people think it's these bad events. So they often don't kind of connect trauma to babies and children. Now, if we come back to babies for a minute, you know, a lot of research and science tells us even being in utero, so when a woman is pregnant, if a woman is very stressed, if she's suffering from any form of abuse, if she is um, in a lot of fear or worry, you know, the the response within the babies, the baby feels that. They feel those stress hormones and that can cause stress in the baby. And so when the baby's born, we can see babies that are very stressed. They find it very hard to settle, to relax. You know, they might be agitated all the time. So we can look at things like epigenetics and understanding the impact of what happens in utero can cause kind of traumas. And we also have things like intergenerational trauma, which we're beginning to understand more, which is we see where people, you know, have perhaps lived through wars and then um, they have babies and then they those children then carry many of the traits of, of high stress as well from what the parents have carried. So there's a lot more, I think, understanding and research around how trauma is passed down through generations as well. So we also then can have things like birth trauma and that can be sometimes, you know, when we have interventions like being induced before the baby's ready to come, it can be things like forceps, it can be babies getting stuck in funny positions, it can be many different things that can happen that can cause stress and trauma for babies. And then once they're born, you know, if a baby's unwell and it has to be in the NICU, if, um, you know, the baby needs support to breathe, those kind of things. And and they are all really excellent things, right? We need that for survival and, and I'm not saying we shouldn't have that and sometimes our best intentions for how we want a birth to go you know take a a different turn and so we're really um it's we're really lucky that we do have those medical interventions that we need 
But I think the problem with some of that is that we don't actually give babies and and little ones the opportunity to express how that feels for them. So we often think that, yeah, babies don't remember, but our bodies remember. And again, there's a lot of science and research to say that when we have incidents or traumas that happen to us, they're held in our body. And so what we can see in that is often um, babies that can be agitated or children that are often very upset or they've got a lot of that fight or flight hormone in their body because they're not able to release it, they're not able to come back into what I call balance. So it's, I think, you know, we can easily go, oh, my God, has my baby had trauma or has this happened and that happened? And I worked in birth for a very long time and sometimes we see that events that happen, what we might perceive as traumatic aren't necessarily traumatic in what we see in the baby. The baby might be very relaxed, very calm. Um, equally, I see that with mothers for some events in birth, you know, that others would find traumatic, they don't. They see it as a really positive experience. So trauma is really in the eye of the beholder, right, of how that felt for us. Did we feel scared? Did we feel unsure about what was happening? Were we communicated to? Were we um, supported? There's so many things that can go with it. So then when we come to, well, how do we help babies or children if they've had trauma? Aletha Salter's work really talks about the power of what she calls crying in arms. So crying, you know, that we classically see as uh, someone signaling, signaling to us that there's a need. So for babies particularly, they cry if they're hungry or perhaps if they're cold or they need some connection to be picked up. And so often we respond to that baby's cry with with a need, which is what we're meant to do, right? This is this is you know being attuned to your baby when your baby's upset and you tune in. Yeah, they're hungry. Let's feed them. But crying is also a way that we as humans release stress. And so you'll often see this uh, with babies, perhaps if they've fed, you know, and then they're still agitated or they're, they're, you know, they're jerky in their movements in their body or they won't make eye contact with you or you can see that they're really unsettled. And sometimes what a baby perhaps is needing is a beautiful release of, of feelings, which can look like a parent holding them in their loving arms and just saying, hey, I'm here and I'm listening. Now, for me, when I really came across this is um, when I'd had my my third child and we had a pretty traumatic birth experience. So um, we ended up having an emergency cesarean and she was being resuscitated for nearly 10 minutes when she was born and then she had to be intubated and Wow. She spent the first four days of her life in a coma. It was a pretty big experience. And we weren't, wasn't sure whether she was going to live or not. And she had every intervention and, and all sorts of stuff happening to her beautiful little body. And, you know, it was just, it was a pretty big experience. So we didn't have any of that first gaze or I wasn't able to hold her till she was 10 days old. And I didn't get to breastfeed her till she was much older. Like all those things that we know are really um, important for attunement and attachment didn't get to happen. And so when I kind of came home, home and I looked at her and compared to my other two children, she looked stressed as a baby. You'd see this frantic sucking action she had. She would make these jerky movements with her hands, with her body. And I, I just knew, and I, you know, because she was my child, I was like, you know, she's, I can see the tension in her. And so once I read Aletha Salter's book, what I would do each afternoon, once I'd met her needs, I knew that she was fed and, you know, she was, you know, in clean clothes, warm, all that kind of stuff. I'd hold her in my arms and I'd look her in the eye and I'd say, darling, if there's one, anything you want to tell me about your story, I'm listening. And she would instantly start crying. And as she would cry, she would move her body around. She'd sometimes arch her back. Sometimes she'd look at me. Sometimes she wouldn't. And she would cry. Sometimes it was for 10 minutes. Sometimes it was for half an hour. And I just sat there and kept breathing and kept saying, I'm listening, tell me more. And what would happen after every time that she'd have a big release, her whole body would relax. 
she would sleep better and she would make really deep eye contact with me, which is a really a sign, you know, of a, a relaxed kind of connected child. And so I began to say, whoa, this is pretty powerful here. I can see almost the stress and tension beginning to move from her body. And and my cousin, who is an osteopath, who does a lot of cranial sacral work, was also treating her at the same time. And so after she'd have a big cry, a big release, I'd take her to see my cousin and my cousin would put her hands on her and go, wow, what are you doing? I can feel her whole nervous system settling. So I began to really see just from my own personal experience the change that happened in my baby by listening to her feelings every day. Now, sometimes babies will just cry no matter what we do. They're not going to stop crying. You know, we might try and, you know, walk and jiggle them or we give them a pacifier or we do stuff and they're still upset. And, you know, I often come back to parents and say, you know, um, we have to meet their needs. It's 100% about meeting their needs. But then if you can see they're really agitated or they're not settled, then what would it be like if you just held them in your arms, looked at them, calmed yourself and say, hey, have you got something to tell me? Now, I often, when I was teaching parents, would say, let's just imagine you've had a really, really hard day at work, right, as an adult and all sorts of things that happen for you and you come home and your partner's there and you go, gosh, I've had the hardest day and this happened and that happened and you start talking about what happened and all of a sudden your partner starts kind of jiggling you going shh, 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 or tries to shove something in your mouth or, you know, you'd be like, stop, I'm just trying to tell you how I feel, right? And yet we do that to babies and little children all the time. We often stop them from expressing how they feel. And what was interesting is, you know, I didn't do this with my two older children. I didn't know about it. But then when I did it with my third and I had something to compare to, what I began to see was such a difference in the way my baby slept. My third baby slept way better because she was often more relaxed. She didn't have that stress and tension in her body. I didn't have to try and trick her to go to sleep, which is what I felt like I did with my older two, like walk around the block for hours trying to get them to sleep. And now I look back and realize it was probably just so much, you know, tension and stuff in their bodies that they weren't getting out. And I felt a whole different level of, of attunement and intimacy with my my third baby. And, you know, over the time, particularly when she was young, every day I just made space to listen to her feelings. And sometimes they would come up, you know, even when I wasn't in that space. And of course I'd tune into her. Is she hungry? Does she need something? And then sometimes I'd be like, oh, I think you just need to tell me something. And I think we have to think back to, and I know we can't remember being a baby, but when you think about how babies see the world, you know, one day they kind of realize they've got hands and they're like, oh my God, I've got hands. This is full on, right? That kind of blows their mind. And then we have people who pick them up and put them down everywhere. And maybe they've got an older brother or sister that kind of pulls them around and there's often a lot of stuff that goes on in babies' worlds where they're like, hey, I don't like that. Or, you know, Uncle Frank doesn't smell very good. I don't like being <laughs> in his arms. You know? And I think we we forget that babies have feelings as well, as do little children. And so when we can give them the opportunity to express those feelings in a loving way, then then we are not creating that accumulated tension and trauma. Now, if we look at that with babies and then we move on to people like toddlers, fabulous toddlers, right, who who are exploring the world and sometimes things don't go the way they want to and, and we often label that as a child having a tantrum, whereas really often what they're doing is, again, trying to express their powerlessness or their frustrations or what it is being little. And I think we have to come back to understanding that for a very, very long time our culture and society has seen feelings as bad. You know, we were taught for many people growing up that don't be upset, don't be sad, put a smile on your face, you know, or if you were upset or you were angry, you got sent to your room or maybe you got smacked. And that was really the product of our 
behaviorism paradigm that we've lived in for a long time that says when you're good I'll reward you and when you're bad I'll take something away and so for many of us as adults we have not had healthy experiences of expressing feelings and that's why a lot of us end up in therapy and it's why a lot of us have issues in our relationships and it's why a lot of us again find it really tricky to be with our own feelings because as children we were often never allowed to express them and so I think you know this work of aware parenting and, and um, coming back to seeing the whole child, I think what it does is it sets up an imprint for the child that says all of you is welcome, not just the parts that are good or not just the parts that I see that I deem it to be acceptable, but we are all angry and sad and frustrated and happy and joyous and and full of gratitude. Like We all have these feelings and, and some are not bad and some are not good. They're just feelings and our job is to feel them and let them go. Because here's the thing, if we don't feel them and let them go, well, we have to figure out something to do with them, which usually means repressing them and shutting them down, or it can often mean turning it into aggression where we project it onto everyone else. So for me, I look at it and go, well, why don't we start when our beautiful children are young, inviting them to express their feelings in healthy ways, and then often what we see is they grow up to be teenagers who are connected to themselves, who don't have to mess up or do dangerous things, but can walk into the room and say, I'm so angry, mum, can you help me with my anger? And I'm like, yeah, man, let's go. What do you need to do? I mean, that's the goal. That's what we want. An aware, an aware child. Um, incredibly powerful, incredibly deep. Um, I'm going to go back for a second. So your third child, I think even as adults, uh, there's a lot of listeners that were listening to that that part of the story and just being like, "I want to be seen, I want to be heard." Like, like it's it, it was incredibly powerful to just hear that um, that space, as you mentioned, for the, the the infant to basically just allow themselves to express to you what, what's going on. And and I think that for so many of us, we don't realize. Let, let, I have nothing but good things to say. I'm a little bit, a uh, little bit uh, taken aback at just how powerful that part of the story is. Um, okay, moving then forward to obviously as an infant when they're crying and you're allowing them to express themselves and to release that trauma and the feelings. As they move into as being a little bit older of a kid, um, obviously there's a chance that they could be using crying as a reward loop where, where they cry to get attention and, and they're getting um, some sort of reward from, from the crying. How do we prevent that from happening where they have a healthy release and, and they're, they're healthy expressing themselves, but it, it's, it's being used in the right way, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. I totally understand what you're saying. Okay. Um, so let me come back a little bit then to, I, I have a philosophy or, or the way I see children and the way I teach it to parents is this, is that our children are either what we call imbalance or out of balance. And so the best way to think about this is that when our child is in balance, right, you'll hear them kind of singing and chatting along. They'll walk into the room and they'll say to their sibling, you know, do you want to play something together? And, you know, they play beautifully and they go up to the dog and they're all gorgeous and cute to the dog. And, and you say to them, darling, could you please set the table for dinner? And they go, sure. And they do what you want, right? And it's those moments 
moments where as a parent you think, you know what, I'm winning at this, this is amazing. Um, and, and we see because the child is in balance, they're feeling good. And usually when children are feeling good, they're cooperative and they're kind and they're gentle and all those kind of gorgeous things. When a child is out of balance, it's when we see them walk into the room and kick the dog on the way past. It's where they go up to their sister and start to pick a fight. It's where you say to them, can you please pick up your toys? And they go, no, I don't want to do any of that, right? And it's often when they won't cooperate. So I always invite parents to to do this kind of scanning of their child. So when they walk into the room, if you were to scan them and you were to feel into, well, how are they? Are they in balance or out of balance? Now, there's quite a few reasons why kids can be out of balance. Now, sometimes they're out of balance just because there's a need that hasn't been met. And that can be like they're hungry or they're really, really tired and they need to go to sleep or um, they haven't seen you enough for the day, you know, and they need some connection and play and those kind of things. And then that, when we meet that need, they come back into balance and then they're usually cooperative and they're calm. Sometimes children can be out of balance because there's a great need for information, which means that there might be a loud noise and that really freaks them out and they get upset. And then we say to them, oh, that was just the garbage truck and they're moving the bins and those things. And then they go, okay, I understand. Or some children have a great need for information to understand about what's going to happen or where we're going. And when we give them that information, then they feel more settled. So I always say to parents, we've got a bit of a checklist. Like first we're looking at where are they? The imbalance are out of balance. Is there a need that needs to be met? Is there some information? But then the third reason if your child is out of balance is usually because there is a buildup of stresses and tensions, or there might be feelings from the past that are brewing. And and again, parents will say to me, well, what on earth has my child got to be stressed about or, you know, tense about? And so I go, well, let's let's imagine that you've got a four-year-old, right? And it's um, a day that they're going to kindergarten or preschool or whatever. And let's just imagine, you know, that by some miracle, your four-year-old has slept in and um, and you wake up and realize, oh my God, we've got like 28 minutes to get to, to kindergarten today. And so all of a sudden you start the day with a hustle and hurrying. And so you go into your child's room and you're like, darling, come on, we've got to get up. And straight away, you're pulling their pajamas off and putting on new clothes and so they're starting the day with a little bit of tension and stress because there's this like hustle going on and then they come downstairs and all of a sudden mum's like what do you want in your lunch today do you want a sandwich or a wrap or do you want sushi or do you want this and all the questions are firing at this four-year-old and this four-year-old sees their trains on the floor and they're like oh my trains this is awesome I just want to be with my trains right and so again there's a little bit more tension and then we manage to get out the door getting in the car always seems really stressful with little people so we can just add more tension to that and then we get to kindergarten and then the little one sees that their favorite teacher isn't there and and they really bond and connect with this favorite teacher and all of a sudden they're feeling a bit unsure because their favorite teacher's not there so there's a little bit more tension that goes on in their body and then they start playing and they're building this awesome tower and it's really brilliant and they're really into what they're doing and then a child runs past and kicks it over and they get so upset and angry but the carer comes over and says, don't worry, just build another one. Don't, don't, don't be upset, don't worry. But this child is upset and feels, well, no one's really listening to how I feel about that. And then there's a few more incidences that go on throughout the day which are very, very normal when little children are together. And then so there's a tension building and then we get home, right? Mum comes, picks them up, we get home and mum starts making dinner and doing all the things that they normally do and the little one walks into the kitchen and says can I have a can I have a cookie can I have a biscuit before dinner and mum says oh okay you can you can have one so she goes to the cookie jar and she grabs a biscuit and realizes gosh I haven't eaten since 10 o'clock this morning and she takes a bite out of the biscuit and then gives it to the toddler the four-year-old right and then the four-year-old looks at the biscuit and we all know what's going to happen now and just has a beautiful glorious meltdown because there's a bite taken out of his biscuit <laughs> 
Now we can look at that and just go, oh my God, what? it's just a biscuit. It doesn't matter. But really what we need to do is look behind what has happened and go, wow, I wonder what's gone on for them in this day. And now hearing the backstory, you can see there's probably a lot of stresses and tensions that have built up for that child throughout the day. It's been a lot of powerlessness. There's been a lot of stuff that's gone on, which is all again, very normal for a four-year-old to experience, but they are needing an outlet to just to, to remove it. And so the way our bodies and our brains work, particularly when we're under the age of seven or eight, is that when we get to a point of stress or build up or tension in our brain, our brain reaches capacity and goes, I can't cope anymore. And our prefrontal cortex, which is our thinking part of our brain, usually jumps offline. And the amygdala, which is the emotional center of the brain, needs to reset itself. And guess how it resets itself? It resets itself through crying, through raging, through shaking, through laughing. And so many parents will will know this, that when your child gets really upset because you give them the wrong colored cup or you cut their sandwich the wrong way or their sister has more ice cream than them and they have this massive, beautiful, glorious meltdown and they get angry and then it moves into tears and then into those big sobs and then they come close to you and they take a deep breath and then they go, what's for dinner? And it's like nothing's ever happened. And what the body and the brain has done is just reset itself. It's come back into balance. So this is the way our bodies are designed. They're so beautiful in being designed to be able to bring themselves back into that center point. Now, as adults, many of us might see that four-year-old having a meltdown about the biscuit and get angry and get upset because they're having those big feelings. And many of them, you know, when I say to them, well, look, let's understand why there's a whole lot of feelings there. You know, parents say to me, why can't they just tell me what's going on? And I'm like, okay, so we're expecting a four-year-old to take a look at that biscuit and say, mum, very disappointed that you took a bite out of my biscuit. I felt very rushed this morning when we got ready for kindergarten and then my favorite teacher wasn't there and then someone knocked over my tower and I felt powerless all day and now I come home and you take a bite out of my biscuit and I'm very disappointed in you. Now, that's ridiculous, right, that we expect a four-year-old to do that because us as adults don't even do that. We don't even have that often emotional awareness as to why we are reacting and doing what we do, yet we often hold children in a much higher regard to their emotional intelligence than what we do for ourselves. And so I am going to get to your point in a minute. (laughs) No, this is fantastic. The whole picture of this is that children don't necessarily use those tears to manipulate or to do it. What they're doing is usually saying, hey, I've reached capacity here. Now, if we just look at it from, well, it's just a biscuit and, and, you know, why are you manipulating me because you want a full biscuit or you want another lollipop or whatever, when we can look behind the behavior, we can say, hey, there's a need here or there's something that they need to express in order to come back into balance. Because when they come back into balance and then we would say, you know what, sweetie, I'm not going to give you another biscuit, they'll go, "Mm, okay, and usually it's fine. But usually what happens, and this is where I think parents struggle a lot, is when children have a big accumulation of feelings, what they will often do is ask for things or behave in certain ways almost wanting a no, because when we have a no towards something and we set a boundary, it gives them something to push up against. And then all those feelings get to come out. So think about it like this as an adult, right? Think about how if you've had a really stressed day, lots of tension brewing in your body, all that kind of stuff, and then you ask your partner to do something, can you get the milk on the way home? And they're like, yeah, no worries, no worries. And then they come home and you've had a stressed day and you're dealing with an upset toddler and all these kind of things. And then your partner walks in the door and you say, did you get the milk? And your partner's like, "Oh, oh, sorry, I forgot. 
And then what do we do? We go, God, I just asked you to get one thing. Why can't you remember one thing? Do you know all the things I have to remember? And then we start laying into our partner about the milk. It's not really about the milk. It's about all the things that have happened in our day and what we're holding, right? And so sometimes what we do is we project all our feelings onto these other people because we're like, can you hold this for me? Or this is the catalyst for my feelings to come out. So a lot of times when I talk to parents about holding space for feelings, they say, well, does that mean that my child just gets to do whatever they want? And I say, no, boundaries are really important. We need to say no to things. But here's the thing. My lovely co-host of my podcast, Marion, she's got this beautiful phrase, which I love, which is we can say no to the behavior and yes to the feelings. And what that means is that when we can see our child is perhaps a bit out of balance and they're throwing the ball at the wall and they won't stop and we go over to them and say, hey, mate, I'm not willing for you to throw the ball against the wall and then they keep doing it and then we grab the ball, that is a boundary and what will happen is if your child is out of balance or they've got a big backpack of feelings, they are going to get really upset about you stopping them taking the ball. And so we can often in our adult mind think it's just a ball. I've just told you not to throw it inside, go outside and do it. But if we can be attuned and we can be curious and the reaction we often get from our kids is big, then usually you can be sure that it's got to do with something else. Because if a child is in balance and often when we say no, they might go, oh, that's annoying, but then they'll move on pretty quickly. But when a child's got a whole lot of other feelings on board, they will often look for things to push up against so that they can unpack those feelings. And that's why often we see it with siblings. Siblings pick fights with each other all the time because somewhere in their being, they're like, this doesn't feel good, all this agitation and feelings in my body. Well, how can I move it? Well, I can pick a fight with you and I've got a place to discharge all my feelings. So I think the thing as a parent, what we want to come back to is that when a child is crying, when a child is upset, if we can look behind the behavior and be curious to go, mm, there's a reason that's going on here. And and my fundamental belief is this, is that no child feels good hitting another child and no child feels good being naughty. And I don't believe there's such a thing as naughty kids. I just believe there's kids that are in balance and out of balance. A child's natural state is to want to be connected to us. It is to want to cooperate. It is to want to stay, you know, in that beautiful love bubble and feel good. But sometimes they can't because there's a whole lot of other stuff in the way. And usually it's powerlessness. It's usually feelings they're learning to work through. It's an accumulation of stuff. And when we can hold a space for them to move those feelings and that stuff, then they're back in balance and they're much more likely to be cooperative, connected, all those kind of things. So for a four-year-old or for a toddler, what would you suggest for them to be able to help, to not get to a stage where there needs to be a, as you branded, a glorious meltdown, which by the way is genius because it's, yes. you re- rebranded it <laughs> in your own head so that it's not such a heavier or negative thing. You're like, yeah, it's a glorious meltdown. Yeah. This is perfect. They're releasing and they're going to be good after this. But mm. is there any tips or tricks then um, that you can teach a young child so that they don't necessarily get to that boiling point? Yeah, well, I think it's um, I think it's not so much about teaching, but it's about how do we support our kids to be in balance as much as we can. So that often looks like choice and autonomy. So giving kids choice and autonomy where we can. If if you were to think about being a four year old for the day, you'll realize, God, how much you're told what to do from the moment you wake up. You're told what to do, how when to eat, what to wear, like where we're going. You know, they often can feel really powerless. And it's not like we give four year olds, you know, the run 
of the world. We, we, we're not meant to, right, because they're still learning and growing. But it's understanding that they've got a lot of powerlessness in them and, and that's pretty normal. So where we can give them choice and autonomy, that's a brilliant thing. Where we can give them connection, that makes a massive difference as well because when we um, aren't giving our kids enough connection or enough space and time, they're going to try and get our attention in whatever way they can and sometimes that's with big feelings and sometimes that's with being really disruptive or sometimes it's being, you know, really oppositional to what we're asking them to do. And really when we have some connection and playfulness and those kind of things, it meets that need to fill up their cup, to feel seen, all those kind of things that can help decrease any stresses they have in their body. And also laughter is one of the most wonderful ways to also release stress and to find our way back into balance. So we can do it through big tears and and glorious meltdowns, but we can also do it through laughter. So lots of play with our kids. We, we talk about something called power reversal games, and they are games where kids get to be stronger and faster. It's, you know, it's the classic stuff when you're wrestling on the bed and they they push, you know, they hit you with your pillow and you're like, oh, and you fall back and they they cackle with laughter. That is a beautiful stress release as well. So there's so many things that we can do to help our kids stay more in balance. But I I think the thing is the goal is not to avoid big tears and meltdowns, right? They're a part of being human and they're a part, a normal part of our child's evolution. And really what happens, particularly in a child's development in the brain up until about the age of seven or eight, those meltdowns and those big tears and expression are actually a very, very healthy thing. And when our children have finished having those big um, feelings, we might say to them, gosh, you felt really angry then, didn't you? And we start maybe putting some words to perhaps what they're feeling and they might be like, I wasn't angry, I was frustrated. And you're like, great, you were frustrated. What did that feel like in your body? And this is how we begin to teach them about emotional awareness. So not only do we not make their feelings wrong, we start to talk about what they are, never in the moment because they can't talk about it in the moment. It's always after. And then what happens is we, as a child learns, hey, it's safe to express feelings and it's safe for me to bring this to you and they develop the language around it, then as they grow up to be eight, nine, ten, you know, teenagers, then what happens is they're able to walk into the room and go, I feel really sad. Can you give me a cuddle? I need to have a cry because they know there's something going on in their bodies and they need to move it and then they'll feel better afterwards. Or they say, I'm really angry and frustrated and I need to move my body. And we might be like, yes, okay, let's put on some loud music and do angry dancing. Come on, let's get it out. We want to teach our children healthy ways to express feelings. The goal is never to not have anger. Anger is a normal, healthy expression of feelings. There's a healthy way to express it for sure. And there's an unhealthy way to do it. And we want to teach our kids healthy ways to do it. And so what I often say to parents too, is how do you model healthy expression of feelings? And this is where a lot of parents get tripped up because they often don't. And our children are so clever at being attuned to us to know when things are off, right? Our children will come to us and go, are you okay, dad? And you might be really, really angry. And often what we do is go, yeah, I'm fine. Now that is often can throw a child because a child's like, hang on, my intuition is telling me that there's something off here. And then you're telling me you're fine so maybe my intuition is wrong. And then they learn to distrust what their gut feeling is, right? Whereas really as an adult, we'd be better off going, you know what? I am really angry. Some stuff is going on at work. So do you know what? I'm going to go for a run because it helps me when I move my body. Or I'm going to go outside and I'm going to yell at the trees because it feels better taking it out there. (laughs) Or I'm going to do some shaking and see if I can get it out. We want to model a healthy way. So then the child's watching going, ah, okay, when you're angry, you don't have to take it out on someone else. There's a healthy way you can do it. Or the next time your child comes and says, mommy, you okay? 
and you're like, actually, I feel really sad, then what we might say is, but I'm going to go call a friend and I might have a cry because it feels better when I share it with someone. And then the child goes, ah, okay, I was tuned into you and I know something's off. And you're also modeling to me being responsible for your own feelings and helping yourself. So this is something I'm really passionate about because as adults, what do we model to our children around emotional awareness? What do we, what language do we use? What do we demonstrate of what we do when we're upset? Because a child is always watching and kids cannot be what they can't see, right? We can't expect our children to grow up and be emotionally aware if we don't show them healthy ways to move our feelings, So if we're frustrated and powerless, which we all feel as adults, right, particularly when you have children, it's just dynamite for that. If we get angry and powerless and we start yelling at our kids or our partner and projecting it everywhere else, then our kids go, oh, yep, that's what you do with anger. You project it onto everyone else and you yell and you slam doors and that's what it looks like. And then we as adults get upset when when our kids do it, right? And they're like, well, they're just watching what we're doing. So, so much of the work is us being able to tune into ourselves and go, okay, what do I need to do to help myself? Where do I, what's my relationship with my feelings? How do I work with that? Because that is what my children are watching. So it's not always easy to be that aware in the moment of, of your own feelings and, and, and oftentimes parents are, are going to be overwhelmed and, and they're going to lose control. Is there a way that you would suggest parents to, to stay present and, and to become that aware parent so that um, they're always intentional with the way that they're raising their children? It's such a good point you brought up, Ryan. I'll just say from the, from the outset, there's no perfect parent, right? There's no parent that is 100% zen and calm the whole time. There's not. And if there is, I'd love to meet them right? because I've worked with thousands of parents and I've been a parent for 22 years and I've lost the plot and I've yelled and we've done all that because we're human, because we're human and we have feelings and also because most of us were not raised in a way where we had healthy imprints on how to express our feelings. And so whether we like it or not, when we become a parent, most of our own childhood is going to surface at some point. The way we were responded to, the way we felt, you know, when we were told what to do, it's going to turn up in our parenting. And so I think it's really important to firstly be so compassionate with ourselves to go, there is no perfect here, right? And we are all a work in progress. So there is going to be times where we yell. And it's so vital that when, if we do yell, that afterwards we repair, we go and say, I am so sorry for yelling. That is on me. Um, What can I do to repair this with you or how did that make you feel when I yelled? I'm happy to listen to how that felt for you. It is vital that we repair when we rupture with our children because not only does it teach them about how to apologize and how to be accountable for their feelings, but it also gives them the opportunity to say, yes, I don't like it when you yell, mommy. It makes me feel scared. And we're like, yes, tell me more about it. Let it out. So that that doesn't become a trauma for them, right? So in the moment, I think what's really important is that when we start to get wound up, when we start to feel really agitated when we can feel the feelings brewing if we can the the most important thing we can do is take a time out which means take a step back go into the bathroom wash your hands like go outside take a few deep breaths and tell yourself this is not an emergency I am the parent here there is something brewing within me but my job here is to be the calm anchor. Now, sometimes we can catch it and sometimes we can't, right? And that's just part of being human. But the other big part of this is that 
a lot of our reactivity and a lot of the way we respond to our children is connected to our wounds. It's connected to our past. So I often use the example, you know, if you grew up in a family where um, you had a very authoritarian parent, which meant that they yelled a lot and whenever you got upset, they shut you down or they told you it wasn't okay to be upset or, you know, the, the whole thing in the family is what I say goes, right? And so you would have grown up in an environment where you never actually got to express how you feel. You had to be good all the time. And usually you probably would have felt pretty powerless, right? And and often quite disrespected because you never actually got a voice. So then you become a parent yourself, right? And then your four-year-old is having some big feelings one day and turns around and says, I hate you. You're the worst dad in the world, right? Now what happens to you in that moment, often what happens to you in the moment is you get outraged. How dare you speak to me that way? That is not acceptable, right? And so straight away we've stepped out of the adult self of us and usually we've stepped back into the child self. And often when I say to parents when that happens, if you were to pause for a minute, and tune into what you're feeling, what are you feeling? And so an adult will often say, well, I feel disrespected. You know, don't they know what I do for them? And that's not okay that they speak to me that way. And so then I might say to them, all right, well, do you know that feeling from somewhere where you felt disrespected or what comes up for you? And often I hear this so many times, parents will say to me, if I ever spoke to that my parent that way, I would have got whacked or I would have got in trouble. And I say, okay, So let's feel into that for a little bit. Does that feeling of when your child is speaking to you in that way remind you of when you were young? And most of the time it does. And I say, so what happened for you when you were a child that you didn't get? And a lot of parents will say, well, I never got to say, hey, that doesn't feel fair or don't speak to me that way or I'm just sad and scared and I want to cry and I want you to cuddle me. And so what happens is those wounds often sit there within us, but because those wounds are often pretty painful to feel, we will avoid feeling them. And so when we are in a situation where a similar feeling arises, which often happens with our kids, those feelings come up and we go, this doesn't feel good. I need to shut it down. So then we move into control and then we move into yelling at our child or shutting down what's happened. And then the cycle continues. Whereas if we can at that moment as an adult go, there is something here for me. So I say as a bent, as a bottom line at, to all adults, when we start to lose it at our kids, now sometimes it's because we need to eat, we have a need. Sometimes it's because we need food or we just need a break or whatever and we meet that need and then we're usually calm again. But if something comes up for us, right, where we're angry, we're wanting to control that kind of stuff, then it is our job to take that and go, what is here for me? What is going on? What do I need to lean into so that I can heal or shift some of the story that's sitting there so that we don't continue that cycle forward? Because in an ideal world, and again, I'm saying ideal world, and it doesn't happen all that time. And, you know, again, I, I know this work and I've been doing it for a long time and, and I would still lose it as a parent, not so much anymore, but when my kids were younger, that when we are losing it with our kids, it's usually because there's a need of ours not being met or where, or there's some story there. And it's our job to do the work on our story. It is never a child's job to make you emotionally okay ever, right? Yet that's what we've been conditioned to believe. We've grown up in a culture that said children must be good and they must behave a certain way in order to make our lives better. And when we do that, often what we're asking children to do is to abandon their true selves, to, you know, to not listen to what their truth is, 
And so we want to find a way where we can all get our needs met, where we can allow our children to be the amazing human beings that they are and we can guide them with boundaries, with what is okay, with what is not, but we also meet them in their their feelings so that they know it's, hey, all of me is welcome here. That That's the goal. You've mentioned that a few times, all of me is welcome. And uh, I think that's a, a very loving and uh, wonderful thing to, to feel and, and to say. As a new parent myself, what I've noticed is, is that, you know, working up to become a parent, you really do start taking a deep dive into your own childhood because you become infinitely aware that how your own childhood and the programming you receive there has, you know, stayed with you that uh, I think you, you called it the backpack of baggage, um, how that stays with you as an adult. And it seems like now as you move through your journey as being a parent, it is one of the most rewarding experiences to really look and work on yourself through your own reactions to your children, through your own, the triggers that your child is releasing in you. And just all of these things are a very cathartic way to kind of become even more self-aware, which I, which I guess is the full point in, in, in your work here is becoming an aware parent and, and aware parenting. So, um, yeah, very, very powerful stuff. It is. And I love that you mentioned that because, oh, sorry, because I was going to say that, you know, I find that the the great, the greatest gift you can give your child is to know your own story. Because what often happens, and I see this with so many parents, is that we will constantly repeat the patterns that are done to us until there's an interrupt somewhere. And so our children, you know, who are very wise, gorgeous little beings come in and then say, hey, I don't want to wear more of your baggage. And so they'll push up against us and they'll behave in certain ways that totally push our buttons. And that is the invitation for us to go, oh, what is this about for me? And when we do the work and when we shift some of our story, I do our healing work, our kids go, oh, good, I don't have to carry that forward, right? And that's often where we see behaviours change and that's where children, um, you know, are, are really cooperative and that kind of stuff because so much of the work of parenting is ours to do, not just what we're teaching our kids. Our kids are our teachers without doubt. Lael, what does is, what is raising a great kid mean to you? Well, that's a good question. Um, for me, raising a great kid is a child who is connected to their spirit, who is connected to the truth of who they are, who has very strong yeses and nos, who follows their gut, who is free to be who they need to be in the world. That to me is the goal, right? So I know we've been kind of conditioned in our culture to go, we need to raise children who are great at school and will go to college and get a good job and earn money. And, and I'm like, none of that actually really matters. I know a lot of people like that and they're deeply unhappy, right? That's not what it's about. What we want or what I believe raising a great child is a child that is connected to themselves because when a child is connected to themselves, then they will connect to others. They are naturally empathetic and kind. They want to take care of the planet. They want to do right by people. And so raising a child to um, be connected to themselves is to me the goal within all this because then life flows from that. So, you know, it's it's all the things it's I'm just thinking about my son as we're saying this because he's 22 and he's this amazing young man that I so admire and look up to and respect because his connection to self is way greater than what I ever had growing up. And I look at him at 22 and think, oh, my God, 
who you are and the impact you're going to have in the world is incredible because he is free to be who he needs to be and he follows his intuition and he's kind and he's compassionate and he wants to do right by the world and for me that is the achievement and I've always said to him I don't care what job you do or or what that looks like I just want you to be connected to yourself because isn't that surely the goal of what we're here to be as humans so I, I think for me it comes back to that being out of alignment certainly doesn't feel good and there's a huge difference when you're in alignment in your own life and and when you don't have that resistance and all those those blockages and you know most of us spend our entire life trying to peel back the layers of all the calcifications and try and get back to that kind of pureness that we were as a kid and before all the trauma and all the all the rest of that kind of kind of sets in um Lael, it's been absolutely a pleasure to speak to you you've got a wealth of information i'm sure our listeners were just madly scrambling writing down uh, all all the great things that you were saying. If somebody wanted to find out a little bit more um, about you and, you know, so some of your courses and some of your, your coaching, what's the best way for people to find you? Uh, well, the beautiful thing about having a unique name is there's no other Lael Stones really on, um, <laughs> on the internet. There's That's a Yale sure. Stone. She's a favorite, but, but let's go with Lael. We'll put the L in front of it. Uh, okay. The website laelstone.com.au. So I have um, little webinars people can do. I have online courses. I've got a great one for parents. Um, it's called We're Parenting for Couples, which takes couples through kind of the philosophies of a lot of the way, what things I've talked about here around parenting. But it also asks you to look at your own imprints around how you were raised, how that turns up in your relationship. So it's kind of a relationship and parenting course all in one. Um, and then I do things called immersions, which I usually run for eight weeks. I have people from all over the world join me. And, and that's where I I coach you through with a whole lot of other parents, a lot of these philosophies again, and looking at our stories and our imprints and really doing the work on who we are to be the parent we want to be. Uh, we also have a podcast called the Aware Parenting Podcast with my uh, co-host, Marion Rose. And we have, I think, about 112 episodes there. And we talk about everything from guilt in parenting to when kids lie to big feelings to teenagers to everything. So um, that's a wonderful free resource, our, our um, podcast out there. And we have a new book coming out really soon called Raising resilient and compassionate children that should be out in the next month um, which kind of again talks a lot about what we're talking about here how we can do the work as a parent and then how we can lots of tools to turn up to be connected with our kids and i'm on social media you can find me on social media all those all those places you're you're easy to find that that's for sure and, and people should definitely find you and, and i can personally attest to to your podcast is fantastic and i'm excited about your book i know it's, it's coming out hopefully sometime sometime this year but very excited to get my hands on it as well so lail thank you again um, i know our listeners got a lot of value out of this i got a lot of value out of this so certainly i want to thank you for your time oh thank you so much for having me 